it's kind of like the scales of justice. So you can only really buy a property where they're all balancing. And if they don't balance, you shouldn't buy it. If they beyond the balance to the good side, you should definitely buy it. Best ever listeners, you ready to take your online advertising into the big leagues? Are you ready to get more leads? Well, how about we do all this for free? Yeah, sure, free. Well, it starts out with a free strategy session with Dan Barrett. You recognize his name, episode 565, titled Google AdWords and Cutting Edge Strategies. He's the only certified Google partner agency that works exclusively with real estate investors. That's why I'm talking about him. And he's managed over a million dollars of client spend and scored an 80th percentile for or higher for best practice. Basically, he knows his stuff. And he is offering a free strategy session for one hour to do a deep dive with you and learn about your market and collaboratively come up with an online advertising strategy based on your target audience. And he's offering to do this for the best ever listeners. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Now I mentioned free. Well, the strategy session is free. And then you can either take the online advertising strategy that he comes up with on the call and go implement it yourself. There you go. It's free. Or you can have him and his agency do it for you. It's a turnkey solution. And by the way, that likely one that being free too, assuming that you're closing on the leads that he's generating for you as a result of all the efforts. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. He's got some amazing stuff. Ask him about the pre-targeting for direct mail lists that he does. It's something unique to their company and it's pretty exciting stuff. He's noticing some tremendous results as a result of doing pre-targeting. So ask him about that. AdWordsNerds.com forward slash Joe. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluffy stuff with us today. Frank Rolf. How you doing, Frank? Hey, Joe. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am doing well and nice to have you on the show. And we're going to be talking all about, well, we're going to be talking about mobile homes because Frank is the co-founder of mobilehomeuniversity.com. He is ranked with his partner, Dave Reynolds, as the fifth largest mobile home park owner in the U.S. They've got over 250 communities spread out over 28 states. His company's based in Denver, Colorado, been a commercial real estate investor for over 30 years. So Frank, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your focus? Absolutely, Joe. Basically, went to Stanford University, got a degree in economics, got out of here early. Back in that day, if you were going to go to a good business school, you wanted to start a business and write about that as your, as your essay on your application. So I had to start a business that I could start, build, and shut down within one year. And so the business I came upon was a billboard business. So I started a billboard company. At the end of the first year, I had three designs, but I had about seven more pending. So I decided to go one extra year to get those closed out. As you can guess what happened, I never went to graduate school. I kept building the billboard business. And then 14 years later, I was the largest private owner of billboards in Dallas-Fort Worth. And I sold to a public company in 1996. And uh, a few months later, started buying mobile home parks and have been buying those for the last 20 years and teamed up with my partner, Dave Reynolds, about a decade ago. And we're now 
together the fifth largest owners in the U.S., which we built just one property at a time. We're the only people who ever build something as large as we've got, just one property at a time. So that's basically the background, Joe. I'm just basically very heavily invested both monetarily and personally and time-wise in the whole affordable housing industry. Now, I know looking back on it, you can identify why mobile homes make sense. But if you can, if it's possible, I'd love for you to think about when you sold your billboard company to when you bought your first mobile home or mobile home park. Why did you go to mobile homes at that point in time instead of other type of real estate? Well, I've always liked stuff that the rest of the world's not doing. That's why I like billboards, because when I was doing billboards, there was only a handful of people that had any interest in it. And so I guess being an economics major, I've been a big believer in supply and demand. So I like to go where nobody else goes. That's kind of been my, my life theme. So when I had had the billboard company, I had built two billboards on a mobile home park. And I check on the signs, and the guy that owned the park would often call me up and ask me to do weird things like, could I knock on the manager's door and ask him why he won't ever call him back, <laughs> things like that. And so I thought, man, what a weird business. I'd never heard of it. I never knew anyone growing up who lived in a mobile home park or in a mobile home. So I was kind of like, well, this is kind of different. And then I also noticed when I was doing the billboards that billboards, people don't realize, is it's federally regulated industry. You can only build billboards in certain zonings and certain spacings from other signs. So you get very familiar with zoning maps. You look at zoning maps all the time. And the MH zoning class in Dallas was the smallest zoning category I ever saw. I saw more zoning for lead smelters than I did for mobile home parks. So again, thinking of supply and demand, I thought, well, this being the rarest zoning that exists, then mm-hmm. this guy has some value in it. And that's really what got me into it. I just was kind of fascinated, A, with how weird it was, and the fact that nobody else was in it, and then B, how scarce it was. Now let's fast forward to today. You've got 250 communities across 28 states. What do you focus your time on now? Well, I'll tell you, that's a good question, Joe. I basically try and go wherever the weak spot is and try and fix it. So basically, I kind of float around. Right now, I'm very much focused on trying to fix occupancy issues and our most lagging 20% of the properties. I work on collections issues, but I work on just about anything, property condition, just about any role. I mean, the size that we are, what you, it's kind of like being the foreman on an assembly line. Mm-hmm. You just try and find which parts of the assembly line are not working efficiently and then fix those. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's very helpful. And that gives us a lot of stuff to talk about. So let's go with the occupancy issues and the most lagging 20% of the properties. What does an occupancy issue look like, and then how do you solve it? Well, you know, we have a lot of demand because portable housing right now is a hot topic. So basically, it's very simple math when you have a mobile home park. Every three calls typically leads to a showing. Every three showings leads to a sale or rental. So you've got to have the phone ring about nine times to make something happen. So our goal is for all the properties to have the phone ring at least nine times every week. So the first problem you have is if a property is not hitting nine, if it's hitting three or four or something, you're trying to figure out, okay, how can we fine-tune the marketing? And I think in some cases what happens is managers get dependent on Craigslist because it's free and it's easy. But the problem is Craigslist is only really effective in the larger urban markets. It's not that great a tool in some of your medium and smaller size markets. 
although it does work well in some of them, it doesn't work in all of them. Mm-hmm. So you then have to expand your horizons on the marketing channels of how you're trying to reach people. So that's problem number one. For example. Problem number two is. How do you expand? Uh, lots of ways. That's the largest metro newspaper, by far the best. Mm-hmm. You can do such items as apartment direct mail. It's very effective. But you can do such items as more signage on the frontage to your property, more referral letters to tenants, what we call tear sheets, which are eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper with your phone number vertically on the bottom that you cut with scissors and mm-hmm. put those on laundromats and grocery stores. There's all kinds of different avenues you can do. You just try and figure out what works in that market. Okay. So that's problem one. Problem two is another reason you can have problems selling or renting is people just don't like your product. And that can be because you're not rehabbing it to a high enough level or it can be that you are missing such basics as just having it smell good and be clean. So it's the same issues that come up with single family. So that's mm-hmm. another thing that can block you. Third is if the manager is, is any good at sales. You know, are they even showing up for showings? And when they show up, do they care and seem enthusiastic? Or do they kind of just give you a look like, why are you even here? And I hate everyone. And so that could also do it. And then other issue can be pricing. I mean, you may be priced out of the market. You may say, well, okay, we know our deposit on this home is 1000 and let's say the whole market can only afford 500 when You'll never sell much. So those, those are typically the occupancy issues we have that are falling into one of those categories. So then I try and go out to the property and meet with the manager and figure out which the problem is and then fix it. So it's no more exciting or complicated than that. And just so I'm clear on the nine times a week, it takes nine phone calls to get one sale or rental. So if you have multiple mobile homes, then you would multiply nine by the amount of mobile homes that you have vacant or needing to be purchased, right? Yeah, exactly. Most of these properties fall into a rhythm just based on the size of the market. So in other words, if you are in Des Moines, Iowa, you could score 50 to 100 calls a week there. So the homes fly out the door and you rarely have any vacancy. If you're in a market that, let's say, gets nine a week, that means you can do a home a week. So there's some properties we have that could do a home a day. We have some that do a home a week, some that would do basically a home a month. So that they, it kind of gives you your idea of what the velocity should be. We don't have any that would be more than one a month. In fact, we try to only buy stuff that can do one a week. So you said another weak spot that you identify and then you dig into our collection issues. Collection issues are huge in the affordable housing business because the very nature of customers who need affordable housing, they don't have a lot of money. So they don't, they have, you probably have read Joe, 70% of all Americans don't even have a thousand dollars total. So what it means is when you're living in a world without any savings at all, you're flying an airplane at about a thousand miles an hour, about two feet off the ground. And the slightest little thing will crash the plane. So all that has to happen is the brakes go out on your car, and to get the brakes fixed is $700, and now you can't pay your rent, right? Or you have a medical emergency, or you go to the hospital, or your kid breaks their arms, a million options. So what happens is when you're in an environment like that, it's always hard to get everyone to pay. Now, our prices are very low, so they typically can always afford to pay. It's sometimes a priority issue, sometimes a timing issue but you won't get paid unless you have a pretty firm program, which most community owners call no pay, no stay. Mm-hmm. That's true pretty much throughout the affordable housing industry. What it means is if you don't pay, you can't live there. So people have to make that choice. Do they want to have a roof over their heads or do they want to buy the big screen TV 
And so a lot of times you're having to retrain people into doing what they need to do and not what they want to do. And sometimes what happens is the community manager loses sight of that because often they live in the communities, often some of these people are their friends, and they'll start to basically start relaxing the program to make friends, and what ends up happening is it screws the whole property up, and then you have to go in and fix it. So it's something you have to stay vigilant on every month because even if you get everyone perfectly trained to pay the rent, like clockwork, if you, for one month, stop pushing it, they all go backward again. So kind of like pushing a ball of a mountain or something. I mean, if you don't keep pushing, at some point, it's going to roll all the way down the mountain again. I know that you all train the on-site person initially. Hey, it's no pay, no stay. Here's the process. And it sounds like that needs to be continually reiterated just because of the nature of the business. Do you have a process that you implement on an ongoing basis for those on-the-ground people to reinforce that no pay, no stay? Yeah, we even built an online, like a defensive driving course that we give all the managers on the front end, and then we back that up with talking to them constantly. But despite all of that, you still have to, particularly when you have as many properties as we have, you have to stay on top of everything because, you know, there are certain people in there who will forget their training or just start doing things they shouldn't do, which they know they shouldn't do, but they do out of convenience or to make friends or whatever. So, How I mean, you if you have the greatest training program in the world, which we think our program is as bad as good as you can get on the training side, it still won't solve all your problems. Speaking about the on-site people, how many people do you need to oversee a mobile home park and take that? It's a fairly broad question because I didn't tell you how many spots there are or whatever. So take it however you want. Most of our properties have just one manager. And then some of the properties have what's called a maintenance man. And that's about all you need. It's a very... Regardless of the size? Our industry is... Well, no. In other words, to about 100 to 150 lots, typically your entire staff is potentially two people or one person. Then when you get beyond that, if you have, let's say, a 250-space community, then you might have a manager and an assistant manager and a maintenance man. Mm-hmm. But our industry is relatively low maintenance because the nature of the business on the park side, you're just renting land. So it's very, very low maintenance. The home side, not that much breaks in the stuff because most people have in their agreements, usually the customers do all the small stuff and we do the large stuff. Large stuff doesn't break that often. So I guess we're like the Maytag repairman. We just don't have a whole lot to do. Mm-hmm. And that's why we can staff things without as many people as you might have to have, for example, in multifamily. It's just not that much goes on. The last thing you mentioned earlier when you said you're looking to find the weak spot and fixing it was the property condition. If you haven't implemented the whatever renovations you've already budgeted for, then how do you approach that if you don't have the money allocated already? Because it sounds like that would be a surprise in this scenario that the property condition is deteriorating. Well, see, when I say property condition, most of that is free. In other words, what it is is it's enforcing the rules. So the whole community has rules, guidelines that people have to live under, and those items include you can't have junk in your yard, not running vehicles, home has to be kept up to a certain standard, grass has to be mowed. Those items are free to the park owner. Those are things that the residents are supposed to be doing. 
The park owner is in charge of the common areas, so we're in charge of the entry, signage, knowing the common areas, things like playgrounds if we have them, and then roads, which typically we do a pothole repair once a year. So the biggest part of property condition is just making sure that the manager is staying on top of the rules violations and that we're mowing the property effectively. Those are kind of the keys. The way we do it these days, Joe, which is different than in the old days, 20 years ago, to stay on top of property condition, you'd have to drive the property yourself. Today, we do everything based on uh, HD videos. So each manager has a Polaroid cube camera and a suction cup mount. And monthly, you put that on the roof of your car, and you push the button, and you start about 1,000 feet away from the property, so you can see even the front entry. And they drive the entire property. Then they take the card out of the camera, and they send the card in, and then we download the video, and then we watch the video. Now, the only problem is, as large as we are, to watch the videos is 16 hours. So... It's a lot of video watching. For all the properties. For all the properties. Exactly correct. But it's an extremely effective tool because while it's not identical to what you see if you go drive, and it is only that one day in time, it looks pretty darn similar. And you can spot problems quickly and easily. So it's like you can be all your properties every time you do that. And if you want to take it to the next level, you can actually put that in a go-to-meeting webinar and you can drive the property with the manager, like you're in the car with them, and discuss it as you go and stop and rewind. So it's a super effective tool. That has improved our lives by a trillion percent (laughs) because now we can just go out and physically go to the ones that are really of concern, which rarely on property condition is enough concern that you're really freaking out. The number one issue you have with them traditionally is going to be in, say, a hundred space community, you might have, you know, a couple of non-running cars, which means the manager failed to recognize running from non-running or was, again, trying to maybe help a friend or something. And then the most common is that the grass is not getting mowed. So basically through the entire winter season, life is bliss because there's relatively no problems. But right now we're entering into our hardest time of the year, which requires mowing. Other than those two things, and maybe there aren't any, but I bet there are, other than non-running cars, how do you know if a car is non-running by looking at it on a video? Well, a non-running car, what we talk a true non-running car, will be sitting there on flats Okay. for starters. So, so you know. One item we've seen more and more in the industry is that people, to either save money or to make it more convenient, want to create their own self-storage sometimes. <laughs> in the mobile in home car. park. So what they do is they buy a van or a pickup truck and they park it there and they use that as their own self-storage. Mm-hmm. So, and in the car, and it doesn't run. So, but you can always spot them because they're always on all flats. Right. Okay. Right. With like trees growing up between the axles or something. We try not to be too picky on stuff. It's just minus the tags, right? I mean, the non-running vehicle by definition based on towing regulations, is something that does not have all its tags up to date. So if your inspection sticker is off by a month, you could theoretically have it towed for being non-running. But that's crazy because there's people in McMansion subdivisions that forgot to get their tags renewed, right? So that's a crazily high bar to set. Basically, as long as the car is being driven, even if the tags are out of date, we do not call that a non-running vehicle. And In fact, if you were to tow that, 
what's going to happen is then the resident, you just created the three foot off the ground plane crash and now they can't get to work and they can't pay you rent. So we try to be very, very user-friendly, particularly in automobiles because they're very expensive to operate. We don't want to give people more problems than it's worth, but we can't afford to have people pulling in a van and letting it sit there rusted on all flats because they like to use that as a mini storage vehicle. My last follow-up question on this particular topic, when you watch the video with the property manager and they're not as experienced, besides non-running cars and grass isn't getting mowed, What's something else that you might point out to them? We actually have a whole thing for them. It's an 11-step process, and it ranges from all signage. We own all the signage in every property, and so you want all the signage to look good. What's that mean? It means that obviously your entry sign is the key one that kind of sets your first impression, but we do not allow any signs that are bent or rusted or weathered or have graffiti on them. So, for example, if you've got a stop sign and somebody spray-painted something on the stop sign, you've got to replace the stop sign or you've got to get it off, which typically you can't get it off, so you're going to replace the stop sign. So signage is one of their items. Mowing is one of their items. Non-running vehicles is one of their items. The general condition of the residents, homes, and yards is one of the items. You've got trash dumpster areas. You don't want to have mattresses and junk sitting in those. That's one of the items. You've got the common area appearance of like clubhouses and any structure, make sure that it's painted and looking attractive. If you have playgrounds or basketball courts, those are all painted in a good condition. The basketball court has nets on it. It's those kind of items. Okay. It's, not, it's not rocket science, but the problem is if you let it slide, it hurts the, the, just the whole overall community feel and it irritates people, and there's no purpose. And the worst part you have with property condition is what you sometimes have is you'll have all these people that keep everything immaculate, and then you'll just have this one person that just ruins it for everyone. And you can see them in most any mobile home park. If you go to any mobile home park, you'll see out of every 20, 30 houses, oh, yep, there's that one person, and that's not fair to the other people. They have their property looking fantastic, and then here's this one person whose home is beat to death, and the cars are atrocious, and they've got junk everywhere. And when we first buy the properties, often they've got three pit bulls on ropes in the yard and stuff. Right. That that's what we're really striving to eliminate. So that person will ha- either has to like move on to another property that says, okay, living like that's okay, or they have to clean up their act. That's one of the key items. Frank, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? I'd say probably you're talking about on a macro level or just on my industry. Let's talk about your industry. Let's keep it focused. On the industry, there are five key things that you have to know about a mobile home park to purchase it or you're going to get in trouble. And we call it the ideal system, I-D-E-A-L. The I is for infrastructure. You have to make sure the thing has solid infrastructure, typically city water, city sewer, Good working water and sewer lines, power systems in good shape, roads are good. So that's the first step. Second one is called density. That's the D. And the density means you have to have lots that are large enough that you can bring new homes into because the industry has changed dramatically over time. 1954, the biggest mobile home was 8 by 40, and today it is 18 by 100. So that's changed hugely. So you have to make sure your lots, even if they can't hold the largest homes now made, they have to hold it at least about a 14 by 46, which is a two-bedroom, one-bath. 
the E is for economics. Clearly, obviously, you have to have a handle on what kind of net income the property produces, what it can produce going forward, and make sure you're buying at a price that makes sense based on its net income. Ages for age of homes, we're probably the only industry in America that tends to favor the older stuff more than the newer stuff. And that's because an older home is paid for. It really just depends not so much on the age of the home, but whether it's paid for has a mortgage on it. Mm. When you have customers where the home is paid for, you typically have a customer for life because there's no place they can possibly live cheaper than the mobile home park. And since they own the home and we own the land, they're like stakeholders in the business. Mm -hmm. So we like our residents to own their own homes free and clear. The L is for location. There's two locations that work in mobile home park world. One is a nice suburban area in the good school district that comes as no shocker. But the other style, which many people find a shocker, is that kind of gritty urban living that like millennials now choose in their own apartments. People want to live downtown. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain number of people in mobile home park world that like to live where the action is in downtown. And those are those mobile home parks you sometimes drive by just outside of downtown or in downtown, and you think, oh, my God, who would live there? Mm -hmm. But shockingly, if you look at a market like Denver, the highest rents in Denver are those gritty urban parks. Those get like 700 a month lot rent. And the rural areas, even the nice school districts, get like three or 400. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that those five items are key. If you flunk any of the five items, for example, if density is too high to fit new homes on, then the only way you can buy a park if one of those five is bad is that one of the other five is good enough to offset that. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like the scales of justice. So you can only really buy a property where they're all balancing. And if they don't balance, you shouldn't buy it. If they beyond balance to the good side, you should definitely buy it. Wonderful practical information, and thank you for sharing that. Are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure, absolutely. Go ahead. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Got your free strategy session to generate online leads yet? Well, if not, go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash Joe. Dan Barrett's going to give you a concrete online advertising strategy by the end of the conversation. You can choose to implement it yourself or you can work with this team and they'll implement it for you. AdWordsNerds.com forward slash Joe. Previous best ever guest, Paul Moore, has a book and it's called The Perfect Investment Create Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing. If you're ready to profit from this unprecedented shift, then go get the book. It's on Amazon or Paul's website, WellingsCapital.com. Okay, Frank, what's the best ever book you've read? The Man Who Bought the Waldorf, the story of Conrad Hilton. What's the best ever deal you've done? Park at Iowa. We paid $9 million for it, sold it for 19 Over what period of time and how much did you put into it? Three years. Additional capital put in probably about $1 to $2 million. What's the best ever way you like to give back? Basically, I'm all the time talking to people getting in the industry on how to do it properly. I do that. I've got a, a design to it that works. It's a win-win. What I do is I drive a lot between properties. I try and when I'm on the road, I just turn on my phone on speakerphone and I return the gazillion calls I get from people and try and tell them constructive ideas on parks they're buying or valuations on parks they're doing. It keeps me awake and lively while I'm driving and it's a good way to give back to them to help them kind of get their mobile home park thing going. 
What's the best ever way for someone who wants to get started in mobile home investing to find a deal? The best way, there's probably four ways to find them, and it varies. I mean, they're all fairly effective. First one is online. Go to mobilehomeparkstore.com. There's about 800 parks for sale on there, but when you do that, you have to understand that only probably 25% of those are deals you would want to buy. So that's the first place most people go. Broker pocket listings are big. That's where half of all of the properties we buy these days come from, are pocket listings. These are listings that brokers have that they don't publicly discuss because the seller typically won't let them because he's afraid of scaring the residents or the manager, or it's because the broker could talk about them publicly, but he doesn't want to because he doesn't want to talk to other brokers, only to buyers who are not represented so that he gets the entire commission. Third level is direct mail. We do that all the time. You basically send postcards or letters to people who own mobile home parks saying, hey, I want to buy a mobile home park. Are you interested? And like any direct mail, we get typically a 1% response rate. And the fourth is cold calling. So basically, you just call people up and say, hi, I'm interested in buying a mobile home park. Is yours for sale? And if so, what price? Those are the four most standard ways. There's a fifth way, which is called drive and talk, where you pull into a mobile home park and just try and strike up a conversation with the owner. Mm-hmm. But it's very, very time-consuming, and half the time it's of no value because all that's there is the manager. What would be a mistake you've made on a particular deal, thinking back through the deals you've done? The biggest mistake I ever made was not understanding what makes the business work. If you go back to my early, early, early career, I bought some properties in Shreveport, Louisiana that I should not have bought. Fortunately, I came out of all of them whole, so I didn't lose any money on it. I learned a lot. The problem you have is to create affordable housing, you have to have expensive housing. Today, I call that contrast. So if you're looking at a market where the median home price is $40,000, nobody needs a mobile home or a mobile home park, right? And I didn't know that because early on, I just thought, oh, well, you know, there's a mobile home park. Why would it be any different than another one? I've learned over time that there's huge issues in the market that make some markets desirable and some not. So... The desirable markets to us are basically 100,000 plus population, median home price of about 100,000 and up, three-bedroom apartment rent of about $1,000 and up. We also like to see market vacancy at the U.S. average of 12.45% or lower. And all these stats you can get off bestplaces.net. That's where we get them all. Then beyond that, we like to buy what we call recession-resistant economies. And that means that they have the bulk of the jobs based on either healthcare or education or government. Markets that are heavy in that, for example, an example would be Kansas City. Kansas City has more federal jobs than any city outside of Washington, D.C. Also has a huge amount of healthcare. It also has a huge number of colleges. St. Louis has the same. If you look at the U.S. economy based simply on how safe is the employment, you'll find entire regions that are very risky. For example, when you go way out far east Texas, it's all about oil and gas, Right. West Texas is also all about oil and gas. A lot of your Midwestern and Great Plains markets are pretty much well diversified in healthcare and colleges and government, and that's what we like. We like those cities where you can have the 2007 Great Recession and nothing changes. Where can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? You can always reach me at my email, which is frank, F-R-A-N-K, dot Rolf, R-O-L-F-E, at gmail.com. That's typically the best starting spot, and I'm very accessible. 
because again, I, I've got it now where basically talking to people and I typically everywhere I go in life today, I take my laptop with me, whether it's to any event or watching TV or whatever. So anyone who'd like to contact me, always feel welcome to do so. Outstanding. Well, Frank, I have literally a page and a half of notes from our conversation. This has been just a great crash course on mobile home investing from ways to solve the occupancy issue. You broke it down very tactically, which is helpful, and then how to find deals, and then overall how to look for it using the IDEAL acronym, Infrastructure Density, Economics, Age of Homes, and Location. So thanks so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Previous best ever guest, Paul Moore, has a book, and it's called The Perfect Investment, Create Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing. If you're ready to profit from this unprecedented shift, then go get the book. It's on Amazon or Paul's website, wellingscapital.com.